Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published and write with confidence. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. Our team is passionate about all things writing, and in these podcasts, we'll be talking to best-selling authors on their craft. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Melbourne writer Zane Lovett's first book is The Midnight Promise. Told over a collection of ten crime mysteries, it is the story of private inquiry agent John Dawn. Zane was formerly a documentary filmmaker before turning his hand to crime fiction. His short stories have appeared in Scribe's New Australian Stories 2 and in the Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. In 2010, he was awarded the S.D. Harvey Short Story Award for Leaving the Fountainhead. Uh, thank you for joining us, Zane. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, first of all, can you just tell us a bit about your book, The Midnight Promise? Sure. Um, well, it's it's called The Midnight Promise. Uh, it's, a, it's a collection of ten stories narrated by the central character, John Dorn. Um, he's a private investigator working in Melbourne, in contemporary Melbourne. Um, and while each of the stories is um, is meant, it's written, it's meant they're meant to be discrete, self-contained. Stories and they are—I don't mind calling them sort of hard-boiled crime stories. As much as one hates to just reach for labels, I think it's better better call them that. Um, So, what's going on? As much as they are sort of self-contained stories, what's what's going on in the background of each story is John's personal journey, where he's having to come to terms not only with all the miserable stuff he gets exposed to in his day-to-day job, but also with his own sort of self-destructive methods of dealing with all that miserable stuff. You know, he uses his he uses his humour as a crutch and he uses his drinking as a crutch, but the thing about a crutch, of course, is that it's, by definition, by definition not, a, not a permanent solution. Um, and that dictates the direction he's going in and it's what comes to a head for him at the end of the book. Yep. So it's, it's quite a unique way to tell the story of one character, essentially through ten short stories. What came first for you, John or those stories? Uh, it definitely would have been John. Um, I sort of, I think I decided like about 10 years ago that I was going to write a crime book and I was immediately confronted by the, by the issue that I did not know how to write a crime book. So I had to, um, play with it. And my, what I, what I, the method I sort of resolved to do was to, uh, alternate my time between developing a full length story. And that's really what I thought I was starting out by doing. Um, like a, like a regular novel. Um, and also spending time writing short stories, what were going to be very, very short stories, like, you know, a couple of pages each, just as exercises to sort of get my head around the character and get my head around the voice. Um, and that's sort of what I started out doing. Um, and what basically started to happen was something which was very new to me, which is that I really started to like what I was doing. I was, I really started to like what I was writing. You know, I'm sure... I'm sure there are writers listening to this who um, uh, who know what it's like to be uh, more or less overwhelmed by self-loathing in response to the quality of work 
you produce. Um, it's, you know, my 20s are certainly no exception um, in all of the artistic pursuits that I was involved in. Uh, I mean, there's, there was stuff that had merit, but nothing that I thought was actually, you know, good, like ask people to pay to see it good. Um, so when I began to enjoy reading back on what I'd written and what I found myself, when, when I found myself excited to get back to the stories, when I was rushing back to the desk to, to, to write more, I was, um, I was certainly surprised. Um, and as those stories sort of grew longer, as I sort of unpacked them, um, the full-length novel, which I thought I'd been writing, wasn't really exciting me. It wasn't the reason why I was rushing back to the desk. So um, I worked on that less and less until eventually I realised that these shorter stories were going to be what the book was. Um, but it was only then, I mean, in answer to your question, it was only then when I sort of stepped back, and I really did have like seven or eight of these stories done when I realised that that was going to be a, the book. Um, it was only then that I was able to step back and see what John's, what was happening for him, um, and 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 the direction he was moving in. Um, so it certainly began with the character. You know, I was very interested in writing a hard boiled, is that word again, um, private investigator style story. Um, the the story, the, the stories themselves really just began as exercises. Right. So. I guess it probably happened quite organically then. Once you had decided on this series of short stories, how did you plan the book so that there was that common link throughout, so that you could tie it all together as one book? Um, well, like you say, I mean, it really was a very organic thing. Um, there was no planning. <laughs> there was no planning happening, um, which was good because the stories, like the, the stories themselves, are meticulously. Planned. I don't really put pen to paper until I know a huge amount of what's going to happen, um, and I know great, you know, entire dialogue interactions, and and certainly how you know how the story is going to resolve. So that part was that part is is very carefully planned. Um, I know there are a lot, of, a lot of writers out there who don't really appreciate the idea of planning or, or, or sketching an outline or whatever term you want to use, but it's certainly what I was doing for the short stories. Um, and ironically enough, there, there was nothing like that going on for the for the, for the bigger picture, um, which makes that bigger picture to me sort of quite exciting. It's the thing that it's the thing that I find most exciting about the book because everything else has been so carefully thought through. The sort of what you might call the foreground stories have been so carefully thought through, but the, what's happening in the background is just sort of um, John's own John's own thing. Right. Yep. So once you you kind of had John in your head the whole time, but where did the inspiration for these stories come from? Because I know the the first story particularly, and I loved that. It was, oh, it was so clever, and I just I wonder where they where they came from. Are these from you know real life happenings? Well, none or? of the stories are from real life, but certainly I mean I was doing a law degree when I was writing the books mostly, and and there was a lot of real life stuff that sort of sneaks in. I mean that's the first story that you referred to. You may remember that. There's a sort of a little anecdote that John tells about Jim Yetta, who's a bloke who falls asleep in a park. That's a real story. Like that's that's actually a real case that really took place um, uh, in terms of what happened to that poor guy when the when the police came along and, and picked him up. Um, there's some realish kind of stuff that happens in the background like that um, throughout the book. But the stories themselves are like that's just that's just my imagination to a large extent, and it's me trying to. Reach for I suppose similar kind of stuff to what Sherlock Holmes traditional stories were, you know, the short stories or um, Continental Ops stories by Dashiell Hammett. Um, perfectly self-contained little private detective stories, basically. That's what I was reaching for. 
Yeah. So um, before you were writing, you were a documentary filmmaker. Mm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what inspired you to move from that to writing? <laughs> um, the writing's always been the thing that I wanted to do. Like, I can say that without doubt, um, as far back as I can remember. But for about 10 years, I thought that the means by which I would deliver the stories that I created to an audience would be via cinema. And as much as I did do a lot of work in non-fiction film, I was also really interested in the fictional stuff as well. Um, but what eventually had to happen about five years ago is I had to accept that I don't really, I don't really have the right personality um, to to be a filmmaker, um, to, to really to be someone who leads a film crew. You know, I, I, I came to realize that there are basically, there are people who are writers and there are people who are leaders and those groups very rarely overlap because you're, they're fundamentally different kinds of people. You know, writers are far more voyeuristic. They prefer to sort of step back from the action and watch it unfold and then just kind of judge it. Um, often they only want to be sort of as much involved in any given scenario or system as will provide them with some kind of insight into that scenario or system, but they don't really want any responsibility. Leaders, on the other hand, have to focus not on what's happening around them um, in order to analyze it the way a writer would. They, they sort of focus on themselves. They, they want responsibility as a way of focusing attention on themselves. Um, leaders are people who really do consider themselves to be at the at the center of their universe, and as much as that's kind of that sounds pretty narcissistic, um, it's absolutely necessary if they want to be confident enough to inspire people to follow them. You know, and that's what a film director absolutely has to be. Um, that's how you get a film crew to work for you for um, uh, you know 24 hour stints and for 10 years at a time, and, it, and it's how it's how actors are made to feel safe enough to open up their veins, which is basically what they have to do. Um, there are very few directors, I think it's fair to say, um, and even this is includes sort of the the, the the great auteurs. There are very few directors who are also writers, you know, who sort of started out with just a blank page and wrote their own screenplays. Many of them were part of a writing team, or um, you know, adapted their material from a play or from a book, but they hardly ever really started from scratch and wrote and directed their own stuff. Um, there are exceptions to that, but. The reason for that is because they're not just different skill sets; they're just different personalities. They really do require totally different personalities, in my in my opinion. Um, and when I sort of came to the to terms with the fact that my personality was that of the writer, um, I was suddenly free to focus on that. And now, with my first book coming out, I'm very happy that that's what I did. Yes, yeah. So, was there anything in in filmmaking that has helped your writing? Anything about that? creative process that's similar or helpful in any way? Uh, absolutely. M- mostly I'd say it's kind of the, the the innovation in story structure that films can can demonstrate. You know, you would, you would have noticed that a lot of the stories in my book are not told chronologically and that the order things happen causally and not the order in which they are presented to the reader. And that's something which I find endlessly entertaining as a reader and I, or as, a, as someone who, as an audience member, and I really do consider playing with time to be an end unto itself. I don't think you need a formal reason to do it. I wish more books did that. I love reading stories and watching movies that sort of make me work. And one of the best ways to do that is by messing with with the chronological structure. And that's something that movies and TV, I think, are willing to do more than more than prose fiction. I mean, certainly, again, there are exceptions. But, you know, people talk about how... Um, there are less and less readers of books these days, and people are often claiming that this is owing to some kind of 
um, not ignorance, or maybe not only ignorance, but but kind of a general dumbing down of the audience, of a laziness of audiences, where they prefer to flop in front of a movie screen or a TV screen or a computer screen um, to have a story told to them. And my feeling is exactly the opposite. You know, audiences are accustomed to very complex tricks and very complex methods of storytelling, largely on account of all the movies we've all seen. Um, and I don't think books are really kind of keeping up. People want to be made to work. They want to be given two dots and a pen and join the dots themselves rather than being spoon-fed, spoon-fed um, information. And it seems to me that writers of books need to be, they, they need to do more than just create quirky characters and you know list all their favourite adjectives and rely on cliche, which I think happens reasonably often. Um, they really need to get the, the reader to 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 work really from the very first sentence. And I think that's something movies do more than books. And I certainly try to do it in this book. Um, and uh, I certainly think that the large, that largely comes from watching too many movies. Yeah. I was gonna I was gonna ask actually if you um, watch a lot of movies. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that I that I that I do. And I think there'd be no end to the hyperbole you'd hear from my wife if you were to ask her if I watch too many movies. She would um, she would highly agree with that. So, uh, are you also um, a long-time fan of Sherlock Holmes? I am. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's still, it, there's still stories that I reach for, you know, I mean, just the other day I was thinking about, there's a story, um, I think it's in the first, what I've got, I've got three, three collections of short stories, and the first one's called The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, I think it's in there, it's called The Red-Headed League, and I was thinking about the other day, thinking that could be the closest thing I can think of to a perfect story, you know, I mean, there, there are plenty of, there are plenty of other candidates, but that one is just a, a, a beautifully put together, very simple but wonderfully elegant um, uh, unfolding of, of, of a classic Sherlock Holmes setup, which is that there's a paradox that he gets presented with, and it turns out that the bad guys were kind of brilliant in what they were trying to do, but they just didn't count on coming against some, up against someone even more brilliant, and he sort of resolves it at the end. And that's something that I still find myself reaching for. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I think I was interested in writing short stories was I like... I, I, I like to sit up in bed at night and read a short story before I go to sleep. You know, the potential to get a beginning and a, and a middle and an end um, all in one sitting is still very attractive. And, and there's not much more, I don't think there's, there are too many more satisfying reads in Sherlock Holmes' story because of that classic Sherlock Holmes structure of, of paradox development resolution. You know, I still find it very attractive. Yeah. And, you know, and it's tough to, to do that successfully in, with fewer words. Um, do you do you find it hard? Have you ever found it hard to get the story that's in your head into the shorter form? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yes, yeah, and those stories are in the book. I mean, some of the stories are like fifteen thousand words long. There was there were others which which turned into twenty thousand words, and they just had to they had to go. Um, and maybe the reason one of the reasons they they had to go was because they didn't quite cut it. But also. You know, when you're writing a book that you eventually realise, okay, this is going to be this is going to be a collection of short stories, even if we want to call it a novel, which I dare say I do. Um, it is going to be a collection of stories, and you can't just chuck in a bunch of novellas or, 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 or you know, very very long short stories. Um, so yeah, some of them got out of hand in, ter- in terms of word length, um, but. <laughs> There was, I mean, the challenge of trying to get a reasonably complicated, or at least reasonably complicated characters and their interactions out in a very small 
amount of time. I mean, there's a story in this book called um, Comedy is Dead in which um, it's just a conversation between two people. I mean, that's pretty much it. There's a little bit at the end. But it's pretty much just a conversation. But that conversation in all of, I think it's only about 4,000 words long, really needs to produce a whole a whole world around the two characters, one of whom, of course, is John, and the other one is the, is the, the guy he's talking to. Um, but the challenge that that is is sort of the reason why I want to do it. It's the it's finding a way to just glimpse something, in this case an interaction between two people, and infer from that glimpse um, you know, the world in which they, they live and all of their backstory and, 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 and the reason why there's so much tension in what they're, what they're dealing with in that moment. Um, that's that's it's certainly it's a challenge, but it's also the reason why I think I want to do it. <laughs> I want to do it. It's the reason why I wrote it because that challenge is the fun part. Yes. So, are you working on anything at the moment? I certainly am. Um, long, long form or short? Yeah, form? I think I think I think that's I think it's time to try and write something that's more than more than a few thousand words long. Um, it's definitely going to be quite fiction, um, but that's the only. And I think I'm pretty sure that's the only kind of stuff I'm ever going to to want to write. But more than that, I can't really go into not because um, I'm being too precious about it, but just I don't really, I honestly don't know. It's um, it's all sort of stuff that's sort of swirling around in my head at the moment. But I'm definitely trying to, um, I'm definitely going to be trying to write something that you you're more inclined to call a novel. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, at the moment you're, you've still got it swirling around in your head. Mm-hmm. Once you get to the writing stage, do you have some sort of routine you stick to when you're writing? Um, I do. It's sort of all in flux at the moment because I'm I'm working full time. Um, but I wrote most of um, I wrote most of the Midnight Promise while I was studying, and I could generally kind of dictate my own hours in that sense. But, um, but it's always the first thing that I do when I wake up. I can certainly say that without ex- and and and. Pretty much without exception, it's been the very first thing that I've done every single day for about six years now. Um, I also sort of try to squeeze in a second session later in the day if I can. Um, but look, the most fundamental part of my routine would have to be caffeine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very, very close friend, um, and I would marry coffee uh, if it were legal. Um, it's, it's sort of, I mean, it, you know, it wakes me up. <laughs> And, and writing earlier in the morning is, is, is a wonderful time to do it because you you don't have that added guilt of having to be at work or running an errand or calling somebody on the phone. And usually our neighbourhood's quiet enough for me to get something done. Yeah. The coffee shop's open nice and early as well. Well, that's right. Look, a lot of this book was written in coffee shops. Right? Oh, there you I, go. <laughs> I, 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 I've moved on from that. That's not that's not the routine that I adopt anymore. But certainly there was a time when um, uh, three or four places, I suppose, right throughout the northern suburbs would be would see me walking in the door um, first thing in the morning and sitting down with my laptop. But I can't, yeah, I don't I do not do that anymore just because I get too distracted when I'm sitting in a cafe. Yeah, of course. Uh, just one final question for you. Uh, do you have any advice for new writers? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 I, I find it a really interesting question, actually. Um, I remember seeing... Um, Paul, I didn't see it. I read about Paul Oster. I think he was interviewed for something or other. Um, and Paul Oster was asked exactly that same question. What's your advice to new writers? And his response was, don't do it. <laughs> Get a real job. <laughs> if, you commit, if, you com- if you commit to a life of, 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 of writing fiction and you're committing to a life of frustration, poverty and loneliness, 
Um, and, and, and those are three, I think, reasonably appropriate words for it, you know, in, in a sense. There's, it's, a, it's a very lonely pursuit as opposed to other art forms. There's not a lot of money for it, in, 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 even if you are reasonably successful. And, um, and, of course, there's a lot of frustration and rejection that comes along with it. I'm not at the point of, to make, of suggesting that that, that that is good advice. Uh, to new writers, thankfully it's too early for me to, to reach that little level of cynicism. But I find it kind of mind-blowing um, that someone like Paul Oster, who's, you know, he's, he's extremely successful, you know, yeah. Underworld is dedicated to him, he's like the definitive New York intellectual. Exactly. And here he is sort of miserably saying, yes, <laughs> I made a mistake, if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't. It's kind of, it's kind of disturbing. Yeah, it's always um, easy to say that from that, that Well, that's true, power, yeah. It's like right? when you've made it, you can't sit there and say, yeah, I, I don't know how I feel about this anymore. Um, but look, I mean, the only thing that I'd say, the, the the best lesson that I think I could impart is simply to play the long game. Um, I, I it took me five years to write this book, and that was five years of never once thinking, okay, now it's ready to send to a publisher, or I'll send the publisher this draft and see what they think. I really did work on it every day, five years without showing to anybody really, until eventually um, my girlfriend, now my wife. Um, uh, needled me into showing her some some of the stuff that I was writing, um, but that that resolve to get it as good as I could get it before actually presenting it to the world, um, I think was the reason why I got published. If I'd sent it to text, you know, two years ago or three years ago, um, I may have had a decent enough draft, but I'm not sure if a decent enough draft is really good enough these days. You know, publishers being sent as many manuscripts as they genuinely are. So I think the, the advice I give is not just the obvious stuff, you know, like learn to deal with rejection because that's what's, that's what's coming down the pike. I think sort of learn to be patient and get the thing to as good a level as you can because um, if you don't and you get a knockback, you may find yourself never completing it. You may find yourself never redrafting it because you sort of you lose your confidence. Mm. Yeah. So that's about as much as I can offer, I think. Yeah, no, well, it's very good advice. Um, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. You're very, very welcome. Good luck with the book. I'm thoroughly enjoying it, and I'm, I'm sure um, it will do very well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the team from the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars, and online learning programs where we help students from all over the world. I'm author of the book, Power Stories, the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business. And you can find out more on my personal website, ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.